from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I need that. I need to get in that financial domination, like you were telling me. Oh, yeah. Just like, hey, give me $50. And they're like, like, here you go. Here you go. (laughs) Whatever you say. And it's all online, and you don't even show them your tits or anything. Look, this makes people very happy. They're happy to bleed themselves dry because they're not. They have so much money. Right. Well, some of them don't. I think some people probably go broke doing this and that's probably less ethical. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that you've got a better chance of getting clients if you do show your tits. Show your tits. That's for the the, pa- the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, Patreon, you, yeah. You have to subscribe for that kind of content. Right. If you're right. just going to send me a one-time only $500, you don't get shit. <laughs> so you should just message businessmen online and say, hey. Send me $500 right now. Look, you're not going to get it if you don't ask. That's very true. So, and a businessman would be the first one to say so. Hey, do what the lady says. She's very authoritative. That's right. You will you will feel all your control slip away as soon as you write that check or make that deposit. Like, whatever. Look, not a paper <laughs> check. It's a figure of speech. Who is still writing <laughs> checks? Yeah, get your investment accountant to uh-huh. cut me a check directly from your best performing portfolio. There you go. And I will be happy to invest it for myself. 
Is the portfolio everything? Or do you have different portfolios? I guess a portfolio is meant to be the whole thing, right? What the what I'm getting at is we need a financial advisor. So if anybody out there <laughs> I mean wants to manage our seriously. portfolios. We you don't even email. have a folder, let alone a portfolio. <laughs> Romance at iHeartMedia.com. Um, also, hi, everybody. I'm Eli. Hey, I'm Diana. Well, we got uh, something exciting to start with today, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were digging through the old uh, digital file box here, and it looks like we've got to take a mail call. <laughs> Awesome. This is from Seth Bats. Bats? Bats? He wrote in after our Lonely Hearts Killers episode. Yeah, uh, that was an episode you got to go back and check out if you haven't heard it. Uh, it's about uh, Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez. And the two of them met through the Lonely Hearts like a magazine ad. It was like the personals ad. Uh, but it was also very looked down on at the time. Like you were very, it was very shameful to have to go through this process. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, this reminded our friend Seth of a story. Seth wrote, I was reminded of how my parents met and I wanted to share it with y'all. Picture it. Logan, Utah, 1973 at the Utah State University campus. My mom's college roommate hands around the personal section of the newspaper, and they're making fun of the various profiles of people advertising their desire for marriage, especially this one single father of three. They're making fun of this guy. Yeah. So a a guy's like, I'm a single father of three, and I'm just trying to meet someone. It's hard to get out there because, I don't know if you heard, I'm a single father of three. So I'm going to put an ad in the paper, and they're laughing at him. Kids are like, After having a good laugh at how desperate he sounded, she dared my mom to go on a date with him. I think you can guess what happened after that. (laughs) While it had a different name, it still had the same stigma you talked about, of only the truly desperate resorting to advertising in the paper like that. Yeah, it's true, Seth. I don't think it's... I guess it's gotten a little better with all the online stuff, because it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. But... Well, and I remember, you know, fortunately never had to do online dating, Mm -hmm. but I remember the stigma around that being really bad when it first started. Definitely. Like, you were only going to meet creeps online, like, oh my God, I can't believe you would date online. Mm -hmm. How do you get to know a person? And now it is the most normal thing to do. Yeah. I think a lot of people are like, I just don't know how to meet people in real life anymore. Not that, I mean, again, I hate to say anymore because it's not like we weren't always using some type of way besides just walking up to a stranger in a public place. Which Um, I also never did. I know, right? (laughs) I had a tried and true method for dating and it was uh, randomly hook up with one of your old friends (laughs) and then date them for two years. (laughs) It worked for me three times, and then I married one of them. <laughs> and I'm so glad, Seth, that it worked out for you and your parents. Yes. That was amazing. Definitely. Even though they were being mean about it. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I hope that uh, your mom's friend had to had to give a little speech at the wedding and explain herself <laughs> and how, how, how wrong she was to laugh at this man. We were like, look at this poor single dad raising his kids, uh-huh. doing the right thing. Jeez. <laughs> Seth also suggested that we find a story from the Morador, or the Mormon Corridor of southern Idaho, Utah, and northern Arizona, because surely with all the polygamy, all the bigamy, I guess I should say, going oh, on. Yeah. Uh, In the Morador. There must be some great stories, which is so true, and I definitely want to look into that, but yeah. I think we all know 
one does not simply walk into the Morador. <laughs> <laughs> We're excited as always to bring you another ridiculous romance today and this one we're going uh across the pond you could say we are going to talk about winston and clementine churchill and i'll tell you right now if you've been saying clementine like i was you're saying it wrong it was clementine and what we really want to focus on today is the fact that um hey diana do you like nazis i've fucking don't. I fucking don't like Nazis either. <laughs> and I'm so glad that there are at least as few Nazis as there are today. Oof, um, still too many. Still too many. But One true. is too many. <laughs> but I'll tell you right now, if it were not for the marriage of Winston and Clementine Churchill, it's entirely possible that we would be surrounded by Nazis today. Mm. Isn't that a scary thought? Yes. One tumultuous marriage, and we are going to get into that this episode and really focus on their marriage during World War II and how it shaped the outcome. Yeah, well, let's do it. Let's get started. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all, an abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Clementine Churchill was born at home on the drawing room floor, not what a drawing room floor is for normally, um, in London in 1885 to Lady Blanche Hosea, who was an unconventional, very rebellious aristocrat, right. uh, aristocratic woman, and her husband, Sir Henry Montague Hosier, who is a military officer. Uh, Clementine's parents did not get along. No. <laughs> they hated each other. Yeah. They this... were constantly cheating. There was This was an arranged marriage from a very young age for Lady Blanche, and uh, they weren't happy. In fact, I guess Lady Blanche particularly like to step out so much that people assumed that none of their children were actually Henry's. Yeah. <laughs> they were just kind of like, yeah, they hate each other so much that it's likely they maybe went to bed together a couple times at best. If that, yeah. Uh, it's long been rumored that actually Lady Blanche's brother-in-law is Clementine's mother, her sister's <sighs> husband. So to be fair, Sir Henry was no catch. I mean, this was a very stodgy British imperial mm -hmm. guy. He he slept around too, and uh, he was he was didn't sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. So with all that against them, they actually separated when Clementine was six years old. It's probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like not a great home life <laughs> together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lady Blanche was described by uh, Clementine's daughter Mary Soames as looking as if butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. Which is oh, a, no. a British expression. Not hot enough to melt butter, basically. <laughs> but she <Yeah>. was hot. <laughs> Calm, cool, she and collected. Was, she would have melted tons of butter. <laughs> she <laughs> she melted many sticks of butter in England <laughs> in that time. Only here will you get a phallic symbol made out of a stick of butter. <laughs> that's a that's some good old American ingenuity right there. <laughs> we can make a dick out of anything. We can make a dick out of anything, and we can make anything out of butter. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so Sir Henry was refusing to pay alimony after they separated, and Lady Blanche fell out of high society. She was living on family handouts. In 1899, Clementine was 14, and her mother packed up the family, and they moved to the north of France to a town called Dieppe. And shortly after, they weren't there for too long before Clementine's oldest sister, Kitty, got typhoid fever. 
Kitty was this like very pretty, outgoing, fun-loving daughter, but Kitty got sick and sadly she did die uh, when she was just 16 years old. And this really crushed Lady Blanche and she retreated even further from Clementine at this point. So Blanche moved all the family back to London and Clementine's growing up and she's, oh, she's kind of pretty. Oh, she's pretty smart. Maybe Clementine can get us, the whole family, back into society. Right. You know, where they had kind of fallen out of favor. Mm-hmm. So she turned to an aunt by marriage, Lady St. Helier, who Mary Soames calls a frightful snob. <laughs> and Lady Blanche was insistent that Clementine get into a higher social class than they were currently in. So she was like, you need to be properly educated. Very important for a high class lady. But she couldn't learn unladylike subjects like math. Or maths in England because they pluralize it over there. Well, there's more than one math. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I mean, mean, you're right, England. Yes, maths is plural. But just math. It's a TH. We don't need to stick an S on the end and make it more complicated. It's so hard to say. Studying math. Which math? Oh, there are many. Right. Or you just say trigonometry, calculus. Right. Whatever. You know, the maths maths. is what the English are saying right now. Yes. Yes, maths. Many maths. Uh, Yeah, so she was like, listen, if you learn any math, you're going to ruin your marriage prospects. No man likes a chick who likes math. (laughs) All right? (laughs) It's like, oh, my dear, I just can't remember what three plus six is. It's really not coming to me. Nine? What did you say? I said eleven or six. I don't know. That's more like it. (laughs) Yeah, her mom's like, uh, you're allowed to learn humanities, and you're allowed to learn French, and you're allowed to learn German. So in her teen years, the headmistress she had at school saw a lot of potential in her and was like, this girl matters. This girl's important. She is smart. She could learn maths. (laughs) Pretty much. The thing was, Clementine was actually, from her kind of awkward upbringing with not being very close with her mother and sort of you know, coming in and out of different societies and being away in France for a while. She was very shy and reserved and quiet. And this headmistress was like, I'm going to teach you confidence and self-reliance. And here's some things I want you to grow up learning. It's too late for me, but I want you, I'm 26, but I want you to learn. (laughs) Practically a grandmother. (laughs) Right. I want you to learn women's studies. I want you to learn about the suffragist movement. I want you to learn about, you know, women's right to vote. Uh, Things like that. I want you to be an unexpected force. I want you to know things that people wouldn't think you would know because you, you've you got it. You've got the gift. And uh, she really invested herself in Clementine. Clementine did go secretly teach herself maths. <gasps> she would go to the local church and hang out in the graveyard and lay out her books on tombstones and study math there. I'm here for a math goth. Math goth, math yeah. Math goth. <laughs> for real. She's like, it's just me and the bones and the ravens learning trigonometry. (laughs) What an acute tombstone. Oh, my goodness. If only someone was here to enjoy my wit. (laughs) And then some constable walks by. Young lady, did I just hear you make a maths joke? (laughs) Someone complained about a blue stocking in the graveyard. (laughs) No. (laughs) The monarchy is collapsing. Listen, Blanche had a very specific trajectory for Clementine, so despite her math goth (laughs) pastime, uh, when she turned 19, she made her debut 
at a debutante ball. But of course, Clementine, her mother, played no part in this debut. So she's there. She's just peeking behind the curtains being like, is everything going wrong? Is she talking about geometry again? (laughs) But it was all Lady St. Helier, and it was at one of her balls, which was held at the home of Robert Offley Ashburton Crew Milnes, the first Marquess of Crew, and his wife, Peggy. <laughs> Where's all her names? <laughs> she don't only she gets. You Peggy think she was relieved? It. You think women Ben were just like, I'm just fucking Peggy, just, just... Lady Peggy. It's fine. You know, because some of these guys had to walk into a room and be like, Oh, uh, how do you do? My name is. Maybe you should sit down. <laughs> Take a breath. <laughs> Where the first half of the day will be introductions. Then we'll break for a light lunch. <laughs> I will continue my name. <laughs> After that. After that. And then sometime on Thursday, <laughs> we'll, st- we'll begin our conversation. So this is the first time Clementine meets Winston Churchill. The Right Honourable Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, first of his name, Commander of the 6th Battalion, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Red of Hair, Father of Butterflies, and Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, (sighs) was born November 30th, 1874, which is a great birthday, I must say. In fact, some other notable birthdays from November 30th, Mark Twain, the satirist Jonathan Swift... Uh, uh, the artist Marina Abramovic, uh, actor, director, writer Ben Stiller, comedy legend, uh, Kaylee Cuoco, another another hilarious actress, Mandy Patinkin, the great, and uh, somebody else was uh, oh me. Oh, that's, that's right. my birthday. His parents were the English statesman Lord Randolph Churchill and Jenny Jerome, an American beauty from Brooklyn. Growing up. He was a little ginger boy in school, bright red hair, and he got the nickname Copper Knob. And he was actually terrible at school. He was not good. His grades were not great, but he loved studying English, the English language. And it took him three times before he finally passed the entrance exam for the Royal Military College. And the way he managed to get in was that he decided, well, I'll apply for the cavalry instead of the infantry because they had lower requirements and you wouldn't need to study Maths. Hey! You didn't need mathematics to get into the cavalry. That's kind of why I majored in theater. <laughs> so you I was like, oh, seen... look, I just have to take a 1001 course in math and then I can move the fuck on? Fantastic. Math's so fun. It never lies to you. It tricks okay. you. Okay, I mean... <laughs> but it's it's concrete until it changes. That's fun, too. That gets exciting. Oh I'm a nerd God. out in you're a second saying, here. You're saying all the things that made me go, oh, God, I'm done. <laughs> I'm fucking done. <laughs> All right, back to Winston. We're just going to rush through his early life here because it just reads like a checklist of political and military achievements. He started in the British Army in 1895. Later, he gained fame as a war correspondent. He was a very good writer, and he wrote books about his time in the war, and he eventually worked for the press as a correspondent, and people loved the way that he wrote. Eventually, he served as a member of parliament, an MP, and there he championed prison reform. He served as the Secretary of State for War and also as the Secretary of State for the Colonies, and also as the Secretary Mm -hmm. of State for Air, the Secretary of State for Fire, Secretary of State for Wind, Secretary of State for Water, (laughs) Earth, Heart, and so on. You know, he held them all. Our powers (laughs) combined. I am Winston Churchill. (laughs) He was elected Prime Minister in 1940, and he gave old man Hitler a what for? A what for? A stern thrashing. So, look, there are 
multi-volume novels about Winston Churchill's military and political careers. There are articles all about his controversy, because he's like also kind of a piece of shit. A lot of classic British imperialism going on between him and India and other colonies. Uh, quite a bit of racist shit came out of his mouth back mm -hmm. in the day. Um, and there's a lot out there about that. There's 40 billion movies about World War II. I checked. There are 40 billion movies <laughs> about World War II. Go, that is Google, an exact figure. Google how many World War II movies there are, and you will find a Wikipedia page that never stops scrolling. <laughs> you will spend the rest of your days scrolling to the bottom of that list because <laughs> there are a lot. And we are not here for that. Y'all know that we are here for the ridiculous romance. We're here for the snogs. We're here for the shags. That's right. So let's look at how these two Daffy Luftswoggles met. By the way, I'm going to be making up a lot of British terminology this episode because I love things like Daffy Luftswoggles. Chattery bloke snocks. <laughs> <laughs> Swindly pitter-pats. They're so fun. I wish we had slang yeah, like right. that. We don't, have, we don't have that. So yes, it's 1904. Clementine stepping out for her debut at 19 years old. A statuesque, lovely lady with well-opened sapphire blue eyes. And a brain to match. <laughs> sapphire blue it's a brain. Sapphire blue brain. Yeah, because she's a blue. Stocking. The smartest brain. You get it. Oh, a blue stocking. Yeah, she's a blue stocking. Clever. I was here. I, w I was on that level. I don't know if y'all were going with me on <laughs> well, that one, but <laughs> I have a regular old green brain, so <laughs> I couldn't keep up. Yeah, I got a green brain too. You know what I'm saying? What? Anyway, and Winston. <laughs> oh, weed. Yeah, it's marijuana. A weed joke. I get it. I get it. Yeah, that's that green brain working slow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Clementine's 19, Winston is 29 years old. Winston is a member of the conservative parliament, but he was a strong centrist, really. He sided with the liberals on many issues, including free trade, limiting military expenses, trade union support, issues like that. And in May of that same year, he actually crossed the floor in the House of Commons to join the Liberal Party. So Winston is already a controversial political figure. And not only that is he controversial, but he's also terrible at small talk. He's not one for parties. He doesn't particularly like this scene. And uh, quite frankly, according to WinstonChurchill.org, he was neither conventionally good looking nor athletic. Ooh. Which, if your own namesake <laughs> website is calling you out for being ugly, like what a burn. <laughs> Seriously, if someone makes www.dianabanks.org and says she was not really very cute, I'll be like, excuse me. He was a member of parliament, but he had no title. He had no stately residence. And most importantly for Lady Blanche, he did not have a big old pile of money lying around. Mm. It was not from cash. And so at first, when he steps out of the ball, she's like, Oh, mm -mm. Winston Churchill. Well, that's enough of that. And he walks by Lady Clementine and they make some flirtatious eyes at each other. Lady Blanche saw him and must have been like, Churchill, keep walking. Keep walking. <laughs> oh, just pass on by, copper knob. <laughs> but Winston walks by Clementine, looks into those big, beautiful sapphire eyes, and they smile at each other. And he walks on by. And Lady Blanche is like, oh, thank God. Mm -hmm. Whew. Oh, 
Somebody bring me a cordial. (laughs) She is (laughs) relieved. So instead, over the next couple of years, Clementine starts racking up proposals from all kinds of stately gentlemen and foppish dull Shopler dags and wimbly old rump snuffers. And Ludicrously fat Bartholomew babies. <laughs> so many so that her younger sister had to keep a file of all of her suitors and proposals that she was getting, and she had them sorted under rejected, pending, and accepted. There were a few in the accepted category. What a useful little secretary. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. She's like, um, did I accept him yet, or is he still in the pending file? No, dear, he's pending. Mm, put him in rejected, I've decided. All right, another one for the shredder. <laughs> she just gives it to the dog. That's <laughs> yes, our dog shredder. Yeah, our dog shredder. Here you go, shredder. Take it outside. <laughs> and she started to get a little worried about how picky she was. She was like, maybe I'll never get married. And Winston, meanwhile, also very picky. And he had a ridiculous suitability test for the wife that he was looking for. He said, first and foremost, she has to have a face beautiful enough to launch a thousand ships. Wow. Then we'll talk. Then we'll see if we're compatible. If her face could only launch 200 ships, we'll talk. (laughs) But if her face could only launch one little puny ship, just like a little gunboat or something, (laughs) she's in the reject pile, not even going (laughs) to speak with her. Meanwhile, Winston's face is Winston. launching ships full of women rowing as far direction. away <laughs> as possible. Uh, women and children first. <laughs> Into the lifeboats. <laughs> so obviously this is an idiotic system that he has set up because once he lined these women up, the ones who were kind enough to stick around for him, right. he'd find out that they had, surprise, nothing in common. Like, yeah, that's you got to rearrange your criteria there, buddy. He learned that looks fade, but dumb is forever. (laughs) But a lot of these women he found very dull. He thought, you know, they only wanted to talk about balls and frocks and things like that nature, you know, gossip. and. That's not fair, Winston. Sometimes I talk about gloves. (laughs) So, (laughs) I've heard enough about these gloves. Oh, would you like to hear about my reticule? (laughs) So, he... Really hated tedious conversation and that kind of thing. He wanted someone who understood what he was talking about. He wanted to talk about politics and global events and the the state of the world and economics and things like that. And he wanted someone to at least tolerate that and at best engage with him in that conversation. Which is so funny to me because it was like society was set up to be like women aren't supposed to learn that. Yeah. Uh, If you did, you were an undesirable wife. Right. But then they'd be like, all these girls are so boring and they have nothing to talk about. (laughs) And it's like, well, whose fault is that? Like, let them have something to talk about. Let them learn some damn maths. I know, right? (laughs) So in the spring of 1908, four years after their initial brief meeting, Lady St. Helier was having another grand ball. Winston was sitting in his tub beforehand, super grumpy about it. He did not want to go. He was sick of these formal events. It wasn't his scene, and he didn't feel like he was going to meet anybody interesting there. Meanwhile, Lady St. Helier was having a nervous breakdown because a guest, a woman, had fallen ill and wasn't going to be there, and there was going to be an empty chair. My numbers. Just throw me in a ditch and let the wolves have me. 
you know. What kind of a hostess has an uneven numbers? <laughs> Tragedy in the making. But then she thinks, wait a minute. What about that strange girl, Clementine? She's still single for some reason. She's practically a corpse. I can put her in a chair. And she invites Clementine, who had spent the whole day teaching French, and she was tired, and she didn't have a thing to wear, and um, almost turned it down, because it was a very last-minute invitation. But she decided she was going to go. So Clementine shows up. There's only two chairs left by the time she gets there, so she takes one of them and sits down, and then door slowly creaks open, and this 34-year-old guy comes in, stomping his feet, real grumpy, sits down in the only chair left, right next to Clementine. And within the hour, they were deep in conversation. Locked I mean, in. these two really were made for each other, it seems, because they were both so bored with everybody else. Uh-huh. And it was just like they were waiting for the other person because he, of course, loved that she knew anything about the world. Yeah. And she loved, too, I'm sure, that he was interested in hearing any of these opinions exactly. she had. And appa- I guess the rest of the party was all like, how rude. Do you see Winston? He's over there ignoring all the male dignitaries. In favor of a woman? That woman is listening to him. How dare she? How dare she? We are having brandy and cigars. Winston, my god, man. What could she be offering you that's so fascinating? Well, it's not like she's talking about maths or something interesting like that. Let's be clear. I think plenty of dudes in high society also know shit about maths. (laughs) (laughs) Plenty of C students up in here. Looks counted little with her, states WinstonChurchill.org. Jeez. Damn, again with the burn. They just took every opportunity to be like, and by the way, this guy was plug ugly. Like, (laughs) And WinstonChurchill.org is a voracious and furious defender of his legacy. (laughs) They had no trouble. They are like, we are going to keep it real about the man's looks. Part of the legacy is... He was a three, and that's how it is. (laughs) A British three. A British three. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When asked later that night if Clementine found him handsome, she said, I find him very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) What is a kind answer? He he has a great personality. Look, she was a diplomat from early on. (laughs) Right. Well, and again, she's probably like, who cares? Like, I've talked to some handsome dudes and I wanted to jump out a window within like a day. So, like, let me find somebody who doesn't bore me to tears, yeah. you know? Who cares what his face is like? That It sounds like that was one of the first conversations she legitimately enjoyed, like, mm-hmm. in her life. In her maybe. life. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Maybe, yeah. At, like, 23 years old. For five months, they saw each other frequently at social engagements. They sent each other letters. And in September of 1908, they got married. And Lady Blanche, she actually wasn't too unhappy with the match. She yeah. was interested. She was into it. She said, "You know what? It's not the easy life that I wanted for her, but she's happy." Real change of heart for Lady Blanche there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? I'm really trying to put a square peg in a round hole here, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe my daughter's happiness is important. I don't know. And Clementine's grandmother, Lady Airely, wrote that. Winston is his father over again, with the American driving force added. Clementine is wise. She will follow him and, I hope, say little. Yeah, no. Lady Airely was wrong, thank goodness. I know, right? Thankfully, Clementine did not say little. She said a lot. (laughs) 
There's a story in history.com, and in 1909, Winston and Clementine had just arrived in Bristol to do some glad-handing with, like, local party members, a little political stop, and they had just been fighting about the women's right to vote. This was a big issue between them because Clementine was very pro-women's suffrage. Duh. And Winston was very against it. He had taken a public stance against it, in fact, and everyone knew he was against it. So they're in Bristol. They're on the platform of the train station. Clementine's on one end chatting people up, and Winston's on the other end doing the same. And then out of the crowd, a suffragist burst forward and started attacking Winston. She beat him and shoved him towards the tracks where a train was speeding in fast. He teetered. He waved his hands. He tilted. Will he survive? Or will Winston Churchill be crushed by a speeding train laid flat on the tracks in a big spatter of Winston mess? (laughs) There's only one way to know for sure. (laughs) And we'll find out after this commercial break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome back to the show. When we left our heroes last, Winston was teetering towards his very death in front of a speeding train after being attacked by a militant suffragist. Fortunately, from across the platform, Clementine saw what was happening, and she wonder woman her way over to him. She was tossing people out of her way left and right. She was tumbling over a whole stack of stacks of luggage. She was pushing carts and porters. <laughs> she slapped a man in the face <laughs> to get to Winston. Just stopped and slapped him. Said, Hang on, I've got time for this. <laughs> and she got to Winston and she grabbed the coattails of his jacket and pulled him back just as the train flew by, Whew. saving his dang-dang life. Amazing. And hopefully, he thought, maybe I should give women the vote if they're going to <laughs> push me in front of a uh, Sadly, it did not change his mind. No. If anything, he probably was like, see? <laughs> Look if, how crazy you are. If women could vote, they'd vote to throw me in front of a train. I can't have uh, that. You might be right. Yeah, they might have. <laughs> Clearly, one person, one woman voiced her vote. <laughs> She In said, favor. I'll have a voice, whether you like it or not, sir. <laughs> I wonder if she said that as she shoved him. <laughs> I vote you in front of this train. <laughs> Clementine. I mean, she was athletic. Uh, that's the other thing about her. She was taller and more athletic than Winston. She liked to play tennis and go swimming and even climbing and everything like that. So she was she was ready to save a life if she was called mm-hmm. to do so. <laughs> I love it. But in 1914, England got into a spot of bother. <laughs> oh, a, little, a little kerfuffle. A little tit for tat with the Germans. <laughs> called World War One. Uh-huh. Well, I guess at the time it was called the Great the War. The Great War, Because sure. they were hoping there wouldn't be another one. Ended up, we yeah. needed a sequel. <laughs> they were like, don't, please don't franchise this. It's just <laughs> the Great War. They should have called it the greatest war there will ever, ever be. be. <laughs> Period. The end. No other wars. Trademarked. Other wars are not allowed to be as great as this one. We're done. <laughs> uh, Winnie, as Winston was known, took on military leadership during World War I. Meanwhile, Clementine worked to provide food to munitions workers in London. So they were both very active in the war effort. Yep. In 1918, she's appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire as gratitude for her work. But Winnie totally biffed it while fighting the Turkish in the Dardanelles and the Gallipoli campaign. And it was seen as a military disaster. Yeah. And so, historic yeah. military disaster. And he was demoted. Clementine told him, patience is the only grace you need. Yeah. He actually then said, well, 
I know what I need to do. I have to go volunteer to fight in the trenches in the Western Front. And you'd think most wives at the time are going to be telling their husbands, no, please don't volunteer to do that. We've got children. Don't go. And Clementine said, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. you should. That is what you should do. Mm -hmm. And she actually said, don't come home too soon. Uh, because that she knew that he needed to show the world that he wasn't some selfish hothead, that he wasn't just going for the glory and to make himself look better. Her biographer, Sonia Purnell, said she wanted people to want him to come back. He couldn't just show up and be seen and then come home. People wouldn't buy it. He had to make the people miss him and realize that he was needed. And that's what he did. He went and fought hard in the trenches. But this was the sort of advice that Clementine was giving him early in his career that really paved the way for him to eventually become prime minister and defeat the Nazis in World War II. Mm -hmm. This was a definitive moment in history. And their early marriage uh, is really what led to his success. Because it worked. He was seen as a hero and really started to elevate his position after taking this action. A little personal note. Winston called Clementine his pussycat, and she called him her pug cute. Cute. In 1922, he bought the estate Chartwell in southeast England near Kent. During the move, Clementine was visiting with her mother in France, and Winston wrote her a letter with a poem in it. So what do you say we go on down to Poetry Corner? We're jamming out with Winston Churchill tonight. Let's hear what he's got to say. Only one thing lacks these banks of green. The pussycat who is their queen. Well, that, that's it. I'm done. Oh, 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 all right. Well, uh, give it up for Winston Churchill, everyone. <laughs> well, hang on, hang on. There's another one from Winston. Uh, if that's not enough Winston Churchill poetry for you, he did write one to his daughter because they had a pug, dog, and the pug was sick, so he wrote them another poem as well. Oh, great. Here's another one from Winston Churchill. Don't forget to tip your bartenders. Oh, what is the matter with poor Puggy Wug? Pet him and kiss him and give him a hug. Run and fetch him a suitable drug. Wrap him up tenderly, all in a rug. That is the way to cure Puggy Wug. That's it. I'm done. Wow. Just, uh, you know, he was a writer. Uh -huh. His prose were renowned across the world. Uh, lesser known as a poet. <laughs> and that's okay. I think I see why. Anyway... So their early marriage was the easy years, particularly when Winston was working with the Liberal Party because Clementine could not stand the Tories. But Winston kind of tilted either direction on many issues, as we talked about. He already crossed the aisle for the Liberals, um, but he still had a lot of conservative leanings as well. Um, so Clementine saw it as her duty to be his conscience uh, about social issues. Purnell wrote that Clementine once said she would have loved to have been a statesman if only she had been born with trousers rather than petticoats. Man, British babies are born in trousers and <laughs> yeah. petticoats? My God. Yeah, fitted, tailored. They're very modest. <laughs> so anyway, Clementine could not be a statesman herself, so she decided she would help guide one. So they were forced to spend a lot of their time apart as Winston's career grew. She hated that he was gone for a long time. She didn't like that they were apart. 
They fought regularly about her more liberal views. Uh, in the mid-20s, he rejoined the conservative party, which was real difficult for her. And she didn't like Chartwell either, but she put up with living there. And Winston was a very hard husband to have. He's pretty impossible. I mean, he loved her very much, but his priority was his political career. Mary Soames wrote, From the day she married him until his death 57 years later, Winston dominated her whole life. And once this priority had been established, her children, personal pleasures, friends, and outside interests competed for what was left. So Winston was like a larger-than-life kind of presence. He yeah. took up a lot of space, even when he yeah. wasn't there. Yeah, and he demanded a lot from the people around him. Mm-hmm. One time they were fighting, and their argument got so heated that in the middle of dinner, Clementine flung a whole plate of spinach right at his face. <laughs> Ouch! This heat is not becoming in you, ma'am. Well, this plate of spinach will be coming at your face. <laughs> Damn. Still, they kept coming back together. They loved each other deeply. That was just a common through line, and this was evident in their letters and the people who knew them and the way they spoke to each other, and it, they just, they really did love each other very much. And he knew what a challenge he was. Like, he understood that it was a lot of extra work for her. He wrote her this letter during World War I uh, while he was in France that said, I would like to have another soul in another world and meet you in another setting and pay you all the love and honor of the great romances. If, he was like, I would somehow be less work if it weren't for all this war yeah. stuff. <laughs> if everything was different, including me <laughs> and you and the entire circumstances of the world at large... <laughs> Boy, howdy, would I woo the hell out of you. <laughs> You'd finally get a bouquet of flowers. I'd <laughs> show you a real good time <laughs> if it weren't for, you know, everything there is. <laughs> <laughs> she was reading it like, oh, that sounds easy. I'm so happy for other universe me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so in 1929, the conservatives were defeated and Churchill was removed from office uh, because of how British politics work. It's very complicated. Don't ask me. So he's out of office, and these are referred to as his wilderness years. And he had a reputation for heavy drinking at this time. He was very prone to depression throughout his whole life, but especially now when he sort of didn't have a lot to get involved with. And then in 1933, this real fucking piece of work, <laughs> this real fucking egotistical big piece of shit, you might have heard of him, Adolf Hitler had just come into power in Germany. And Winston and Clementine both were like, hey, everybody, bad idea. This guy is bad news. We don't like this. No one should be okay with this. And this isn't going to go well for anyone. And, you know, England wasn't really thinking about it that much at the time. The government that was in power was like, yeah, yeah, Germany's doing their thing. We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Or he's just a rabble rouser. He's just a smooth talker or whatever. No worries. So Churchill was one of the few voices at that time that was really speaking out against it. To be fair, Churchill also said similar things about Gandhi. <laughs> so, you know, you, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. I was going to say, um, if England was anything like America in the early 30s, they did not care because they were more concerned about Germany paying their reparations for World War I, for the mm -hmm. Great War, than they were about whatever they were doing with 
German Jews. Just pay us our money. Yeah. I always thought that was very frustrating that we were yeah. like, yeah, debt. That's the more important thing. Yeah. So anyway, the 30s are rocky for the Churchills and the, the world. You know, everybody. And Europe. There's and, like a depression. And... Yeah, there's like a whole lot going on. <laughs> Nobody was having a great time mm-hmm. in the 30s. Yeah. And 1933 is going to take us to this week's double side piece. A double side piece. There's two of them. Both sides. It takes two to tango. Winston Churchill's secret affair is this mishmash of gossip and passion and super British repressed emotion. In 1985, this guy Jock Colville, who had been one of Churchill's wartime secretaries, came out in an interview and said, Winston Churchill certainly had an affair. Now, at this point, 1933, Churchill's going to be about 60 years old. And he was taking holiday regularly in the French Riviera. Clementine didn't care for the south of France, and she never went with him. So he's there alone, hanging out with some friends there. And he spent many days with a woman named Doris Castleross. Doris was a total smoke show. She was way younger than him. And she allegedly had been sleeping her way up the ranks through society because she kind of came from nothing and didn't like that. Um, She had been an American courtesan and slept with uh, American millionaire Stephen Sanford and this aristocrat Tom Mitford and reportedly even tried to cure a known homosexual Robert Herbert Percy. Uh, Hey, guess what? Didn't work out for her (laughs) there because that's not how it works, Doris. So how hot was Doris? Well, she is the great aunt of model and actor Cara Delevingne. Oh my God. She's also a very... Uh, sexual woman and she once said there's no such thing as an impotent man only an incompetent woman oh my god I mean sorry sorry I got something stuck in my throat well okay but Doris would tell you that it is you know you should get something else stuck in your throat (laughs) yeah that's what she'd say gross Doris gross Doris Colville claims that they had a recurring affair Doris's niece Caroline Delavine, who's Cara Delavine's mother, said, My mother had many stories about my aunt's house in Berkeley Square. When Winston came to visit, the staff were all given the day off. Which tells you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, you won't be needed today. Thank yeah. you. Take your prying eyes elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline Delavine also said, Doris confided in my mother, and yes, it was known that they were having an affair. Winston's even rumored one time to have told her, Doris, you could make a corpse come. Please don't. (laughs) Well, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Clementine's at home, being awesome, getting cheated on, this is bullshit. But no. In 1935, she boarded this yacht called the Rosara, and she met a bright handsome, strong-jawed art dealer named Terrence Phillip. Can I just say how hard it was, <laughs> was to Google to... information about Terrence Phillip? Because all I got is, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Speaking of strong jaws, ours don't even connect. <laughs> but Clemmy really needed a break. This guy's the polar opposite of Winston. Okay, he's fast and loose. He's not ambitious. He's just a fun, playful guy. Super fun to be around. They're having a good old time. And she kind of falls like head over heels for him. But he had not met Doris, so he was gay. <laughs> <laughs> so the cruise wasn't the kind of cruising 
<laughs> the, the kind of Smokey Robinson cruise and she was going for. <laughs> but I think it was probably a really good break for her. She probably yeah. was like, I'm a woman. I yeah. think it probably made her feel like a woman again. You know good. what I mean? Like, I look good. I feel good. I think that really put some heart back into her and she was very excited to get back to Winston. Their letters to each other at the time while they were in separate areas were still full of love and romance and people who knew them and knew all the gossip at the time said this is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Bollocks. This is all it's all a load of bollocks. <laughs> Winstonchurchill.org furiously defend their fidelity. They say not only is this evidence super flimsy, uh but We also don't trust this guy who said it. He doesn't know anything. They say it's all bullshit. They also say these two were so in love that an affair is unthinkable. But I take issue with that as evidence because I think it's a broad statement to say two people who are very much in love couldn't possibly have had an affair on opposite sides of the world, especially at a rocky point in their relationship. You don't have to have a bad relationship for that to happen necessarily. Yeah, you don't cheat unless you've fallen out of love is a very limiting way to think about yeah. it, for sure. Yeah, And to think about love <laughs> in general. Regardless, whatever happened with the affair or not, none of that mattered because we're moving into the late 1930s now and the world needed England to step up and England needed Winston Churchill and Winston needed Clementine. But before we get in all that, let's just take a little quick break and be right back after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. 
and in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome back to the show. Uh, Where were we? In 1936, King Edward VIII wanted to marry an American socialite named Wallace Simpson. This is another one we could probably do another episode Oh, we will. Yeah, skip forward to our future episode about (laughs) King Edward and Wallace Simpson. That's a whole thing. Uh, This was a big deal because Wallace Simpson was working on her second divorce. And the Church of England didn't allow divorced people to remarry if their ex-spouse was still alive. And so there's a constitutional crisis there. So Edward was like, well, you know what? How about y'all keep this throne and I go marry my divorcee? I would rather have her than be king. Um, So he abdicated. Churchill thought this whole thing was just nonsense. But Clementine was in his ear like, hey, you're really reading the room wrong. Really keeping him in touch with everybody else's opinions and trying to make sure that he's steered a little bit by public opinion because that's very important in politics. Uh, So Edward abdicated the throne and he pledged loyalty to King George VI, but he had called the whole thing unnecessary. Fortunately, though, I think we're glad that Edward abdicated because he was something of a Nazi sympathizer himself. So if he had not fucked off, England may have made a deal with Nazi Germany and we might have just a very different world today. So glad that King Edward is gone, especially with what's coming next, Mm -hmm. because in May of 1937, the Prime Minister Baldwin resigned. And Neville Chamberlain was made prime minister. At first, Churchill and Chamberlain, he's totally into it. But then came the appeasements. Chamberlain appeased first to Mussolini, then eventually to the Fuhrer of fucksticks himself, (laughs) Adolf Hitler. And what that meant was give a little ground to the Nazis and and hopefully that'll stop an all-out war from happening. Turns out you should never give a little ground to the Nazis. (laughs) Yeah, here's a little historical lesson for you. Because in September of 1938, Hitler is like, Oh, we're going to take the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, okay? Yeah, this is a very good idea. This is the last time we're going to take any part of Europe. Don't worry, it's the last thing we want. Uh, We swear, pinky swear, we're not going to take anything else. And Winston Churchill storms down to Downing Street. He's fucking pissed. He kicks down the door and he's like, Bloody hell he is! Mm -hmm. He tells Chamberlain, Listen, 
You're going to tell Hitler that if they lay one sauerkraut and swastika-covered John Jacob Jingleheimer finger on Czechoslovakia, we're going to war. And Chamberlain says, no. (laughs) And he goes down to Munich and signs the Munich Agreement, which basically says, sure, Germany, we won't get in your way. Uh, and everybody's going to be cool, and we're all cool here. Everything's fine. But Hitler had his fingers crossed behind his back. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Churchill called it a total and unmitigated defeat. And big surprise, within a year, Hitler was fucking around and not finding out, so Britain declared war on Germany. And everybody's looking around like, hey, Excuse me, did somebody see this coming? Did anybody tell us that we shouldn't let the Nazis just run around with their schnitzels out? (laughs) Did anybody think this was maybe going to go badly for us? And they're like, oh, Winston Churchill seemed to say something about it. Hmm. So the day they declared war, Chamberlain goes to Churchill and is like, uh, yes, I'm going to reappoint you as the first Lord of the Admiralty, which was... Churchill's original position in World War I. In April of 1940, the Nazis took Norway, and a two-day debate was launched on how the British government was handling the war. Spoiler alert, not well. <laughs> uh, there's basically a vote of no confidence in Chamberlain. We mm-hmm. don't trust him. We need a bulldog oh, up yeah. in here. And somebody said, I know a pug. <laughs> That's <laughs> perfect for this job. Uh-huh. And Winston Churchill became prime minister. <laughs> recently has Clementine's importance in World War II really come to light. We didn't know about any of this shit until very, very recently. The public figure that we know and and imagine Winston Churchill to be, she was half of that person, really. Like, his speeches, rousing and amazing and inspiring, and they really were a vital part of the Allied victory against Hitler. And she was his editor. She helped write those speeches. She's not only his rock in private, but she's also his editor. She's also, you know, his, kind of his ear in the ground. She is part of what we think of as Winston Churchill, the leader. In September 1940, the Germans start bombing London. It's the Blitz. And this went on for eight months and five days. Uh, it was constant. For the first two months, bombs were dropped by the Luftwaffe, Almost every single day and night. Out of the first 57 days, 56 of them saw bomb droppings. And the goal of, the, of all this wasn't just to destroy military targets. It was also about crushing the English spirit. They wanted them to be so downtrodden and tired that they would not be able to campaign against them. Well, they wanted the English people to want to get out of the war. They wanted to mm-hmm. exhaust them to the point they were, that they would tell their government, pull out. We don't care. Stop. Yeah. This is terrible. And honestly, if it weren't for the Churchills, that really might have worked. But Clementine stepped it up for herself for her husband, and for England. She sent a letter to Winston. He had been very brutish and demanding and not really being sensitive to people's needs. He was very like, you know, get up, shake it off, quit your bitching, (laughs) you know, we're going to keep fighting, like, cold and uncaring in a way. And she wrote him this letter that was basically like, hey. You're not reading the room right. You're not reading the room. You've Mm got to bring people with you. You've got to make them love you, and you've got to show them how to do it. You've got to go with them lift them up, 
and move them forward. And this changed his whole attitude and helped him rally the support that he needed and the spirit that England was looking for. This is the foundation of that keep calm and carry on mentality that Churchill espoused so much. Well, and it can't be overstated. They were still recovering from World War One, Exactly. And exactly. when World War Two started. So it's like they, everyone's just sick of this shit but before it even began. Yeah. So Purnell, Clementine's biographer, said she saw all Britain had was a collective spirit, and that needed to be fostered, nurtured, and protected. And at first, London didn't have any mass shelters ready for this bombing. And they had used their underground train stations as shelters in World War I, but the government was not allowing them to use them again. They, were, they said, we don't want to disrupt commuter travel and... We don't want people going down there and refusing to leave. So at first, they locked the doors to the train stations uh, during the bombings. And after two weeks, they realized they couldn't do that anymore. And they had to open up and let people down there. They were and, like, oh, this is like an everyday thing with yeah, the Luftwaffe. This we isn't need to stopping. find somewhere safe yeah, yep. for everyone to go. And in mid-September, 150,000 people slept underground every night. And obviously, these conditions were terrible. And Clementine goes to the ministers and governments. She's like, hey, get some fire exits in here. Hey, you better build some beds. I want you to manufacture two million beds right now. We got to get them down there. I want people to be able to sleep in beds next to their children so their children aren't terrified of the air raid sirens and the bombings. And it's cold down there. Let's get some heating involved. You know, she was handling it. She was like, move people, go, 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 make this work. Not only that, she was active as a fire watcher, and she helped put together many of the systems in place where women were helping the war effort at home, which made all the difference. There's a lot of history there, too. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Winston's out here leading the charge. He's putting his friggin' foot down when it comes to fighting the Nazis. Uh-huh. The British government kept being like, well, yes, all well and good, but if France falls, we're going to take a bit of a step back. Am I right? I mean, we're going to really reevaluate all of this, yes. And Winston's like, you, motherfuckers, we're fighting. <laughs> we're going to, did you not hear me when I said keep calm and carry on? I didn't mean keep calm and then fucking pull out and run like a, like a little fucking piece of shite. <laughs> I meant we fighting these Nazis and we ain't stopping. I don't want to be seen as a little bitch. <laughs> yeah, he would go on air. He would read these speeches that he had written and Clementine had edited. And he gave him the whole resilient spirit that they needed to get through this really difficult time. He's thriving like never before because this is a really difficult time. But this is kind of the perfect place for someone like Winston Churchill. He claimed to be thrilled to be in charge in wartime in British history. He just knew that was his strong suit. Yeah. And that England needed someone like him at this exact point, mm-hmm. and he needed to do this at this exact point. And their marriage was really strong right now. They're doing really, really well, and the two of them really helped rally that English spirit. And Clementine comes out, and she becomes the chairperson of the Red Cross Aid to Russia Fund because during World War II, almost 17 million Russians died. It was 15% of their entire population. So Russia really got hit hard. And uh, England had a lot of sympathy for Russia. And Clementine was like, 
we can help. So she called all of their wealthy friends. She got a bunch of famous musicians and celebrities on board. She got factory workers and schoolgirls to knit scarves and gloves and hats. And the Red Cross Aid to Russia Fund raised one million pounds between October and December of 1941. So in just a few months. And a total of eight million pounds by the end of the war. Which today would be, let's see here, um, 354 million pounds or $488 million American. Almost half a billion dollars in about four years. The night before the D-Day landings in June of 1944, Winston was very upset and depressed. Churchill was nervous about a full frontal assault in Normandy. He had seen the defeats at Dunkirk and Anzio and Salerno, and he floated the idea that, hey, maybe we hit Sicily. We go to what he called Europe's soft underbelly. <laughs> but Stalin and Roosevelt were firm in attacking Normandy, and Churchill actually took the high road here. He was like, well, it's better for us all to be united, so if that's what we're doing, we're doing it. So he was like, I'm okay, I'm on board with this. But he was very nervous about it. He and Clementine had dinner alone the night beforehand, and he told her, do you realize that by the time you wake up in the morning, 20,000 men may have been killed? Bummer note for the dinner table. Yeah, but she comforted him. She reminded him of that united spirit that they had together and that the country had and that it had kept them going this long, and she reminded him that that would be what won the war in the end. And sure enough, on June 6, 1944, 156,000 American, British, and Canadian forces had landed on the five beaches along the coast of Normandy. By late August, all of northern France was liberated from Nazi occupation, and by the following May, Nazi punks fuck off. Yes. They were defeated, with the Japanese surrendering the following September. World War II was finally over. And I mean, look, if you want a World War II podcast with all the battles <laughs> and dates and strategies and all the significant details, please allow me to direct you to www.google.com. Ooh, let me write that down. <laughs> you are going to find three trillion hours of content, right? The point here on Ridiculous Romance, as we said, is that nobody's talking about how important Winston and Clementine's marriage was during the war. Sonia Purnell's biography totally blew the lid off of Clementine's involvement here, but that didn't even come out till 2015. So we are very recently learning this information. In fact, in an NPR interview about that book, she said, I didn't even know anything about this woman until I found, uh, you know, one letter that sort of sent her on the journey. Oh, wow. Uh, and, uh, and she suddenly realizes, holy shit, this lady is why we beat the Nazis in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, and that's really incredible. Yeah, Julia Kelly, who is an author who's written about the extensive, vital role of women during the war, uh, has a piece on Clementine. And she says Clementine even had a room of her own in Winston's war rooms, this, which was a bunker in London that was the center of Britain's wartime strategy. And she kicked his ass when he needed it. She was one of the few people who would openly criticize his ideas in private and tell him, hey, you're not reading the room right. You know, she was one of the only one of the few people who were telling him things like that yeah. and made a huge difference, obviously. And then also she took this five week tour of Moscow in early 1945 before the war was over. 
She's invited to see how all their supplies were being put to good use from all her fundraising that she'd done with the Red Cross. Relations between England and Russia were a little strained, mainly because there had been this little secret meeting between the Yanks and the Brits and the Nazis to see if maybe a little peace separate from Russia could be worked out. Unbelievable. Uh, Russia was super pissed about that, obviously, because like we said, 17 million of them are dead yeah. for this, this effort. Stalin's like, excuse me, I hear you have meeting and I'm not invited. Hmm. What, uh, what, are, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, he's mad. So guess who goes and smooths that whole thing over? It ain't Winston, it's Clementine. She goes over there to tour, and Stalin sent a letter to Winston saying Clementine had left a deep impression on him. (laughs) Uh, She just charmed the fuck out of the Russians. They loved her. They said it was a delight to see her. She was endearing. Uh, She was helping the Soviet Union immensely in these difficult times. So they were just, like, all about Clementine. Yeah. And Churchill missed her. He said he would be very glad to see her come home, um, probably because he was like, man, I'm misreading rooms all over the place. I need you to come back. (laughs) He wrote to her, Express to Stalin my cordial feelings and my resolve that a complete understanding between the English-speaking world and Russia will be achieved and maintained for many years. (laughs) I love it. Your Churchill is very Nixon. I know, right? (laughs) I was trying to get the jowls in there. Yeah, no, you got the jowls for sure, yeah. But uh, many years, maybe not quite right, but they did have a couple. They had some time. Yeah, I guess, yes, between Russia and the English-speaking world. Um, what, do, what do you think? Maybe three years things yeah, were okay there? I think the atomic bomb really made a an impression on yeah. Russia. <laughs> yeah, the atomic bomb, it really kind of, you could say it really blew a hole in things. You could say it really, um, you could say they really nuked their chances of having a good... A good relationship. Ayo. They were fishing for fishing. a problem. Fishing for a problem. They were really, uh, um, well, you get it. You get it. Bomb jokes. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. Winston Churchill's chief of staff, General Ismay, said later that if not for Clementine, the history of Winston Churchill and indeed of the world itself would have been a very different story. Winston himself said of her, she made my life and any work I have done possible. And it's not just that, but he said that marrying this brilliant, kind, strong woman was his greatest achievement. He said, what could be more glorious than to be united with a being incapable of an ignoble thought? Hmm, that's nice. He really respected the hell out of her. Mm-hmm. He really As thought they she should. was amazing. She earned that respect. Oh, absolutely. In fact, she was awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor by the Soviet Union for her philanthropy. And in 1946, she was appointed the Dame Grand Cross of the Order of the British Empire, becoming Dame Clementine Churchill. Uh, In the years following the war, Churchill continued to lead the Conservative Party. He encouraged an increasingly strong allyship between England and the U.S. to help fend off the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union. Churchill was prime minister again in the 1950s. He was 76 when he took office and already in poor health. And so after King George died and Elizabeth II took the crown, uh, he stayed around for a few years. But in 1955, he retired after suffering a stroke. 
he was finally like, I guess I should go sit down for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and Elizabeth awarded him the Order of the Garter, which is the most senior knighthood in the English system that you can get. Yep. <laughs> she was like, find me the biggest medal we have. <laughs> they wheeled it in on a carriage. <laughs> like, probably a cake with his face on it. Sure. I don't um, want to see that. That is a very unappetizing cake. <laughs> they were like, actually, forget that. Put Clementine's face on it. Even your website says <laughs> this cake is hideous. They had a cake with a quote from his website saying his face was not that good. <laughs> Damn, so rude. Total roast. His health continued to decline. In 1963, President Kennedy, acting under the authorization of Congress, proclaimed him an honorary citizen of the United States. Hey, I, uh, stop by any time, Winston. <laughs> One of us. At the age of 88, less than two years before his death, he wrote to Clementine, My darling one, this is only to give you my fondest love and kisses a hundred times repeated. I am a pretty dull and paltry scribbler, but my stick as I write carries my heart along with it. Yours ever and always, W. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Sir Winston died on January 24th. In 1965, at the age of 90. Mm. Following his death, Clementine was created a life peer as Baroness Spencer Churchill of Chartwell. A life peer means uh, your title can't be inherited. That's just for you. She took some political action, but her growing deafness made it pretty hard for her to be involved in Parliament. And she died in her London home of a heart attack at 92 years old in 1977, 12 years after Winston's death. So yeah, if Churchill and Clementine hadn't overcome their joy of missing out and gone <laughs> to that party right. and sat next to each other, yep. Um, yeah, it's very likely that he would not have become prime minister. Yeah. And if he had not been prime minister, it's very possible that Britain would have reached an agreement with Hitler, redrawn the map of Europe, and we would be just... Again, living in a very different world. Very different. I mean, it's insane to think of that just like if those two chairs hadn't been empty next to each other, you know, right. if they hadn't both been in a kind of a grumpy mood, if they had settled to marry someone else earlier in life or any just, you know, step on a butterfly, mm -hmm. you know, this is what they're talking about. You make one little change and who knows what the repercussions could be historically. And, you know... Would England have just conceded to the Nazis? It's hard to say, but Winston was certainly one of the heaviest pushers against Nazism in England at the time. He really rallied the country to fight against the Nazis in a way that I'm not sure another leader in England at that time would have. Yeah, he was so pugnacious, <laughs> pugnacious, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that he, uh, it's entirely possible there was another politician saying right. the same thing, but maybe they weren't willing to go as far as Winston was right. in saying it over, like really saying, no, I am going to fight you about this. Right. Um, so, yeah, just thankful for both these personalities yeah. meeting each other at the right time. And, you know, we didn't talk about the USA much, but... Uh, but Churchill and FDR had a strong relationship. So Churchill himself, you know, as leader, helped to get America involved in the war. But beyond that, Churchill and FDR also butted heads a lot. And there were many times when that uh, that alliance was in danger. And Clementine and Eleanor Roosevelt had a very strong relationship. 
And the two of them certainly went back to their husbands and said, y'all need to clean it up, Mm -hmm. get it together, Mm -hmm. and work it out because you're both reading the rooms wrong. Right. I was thinking that, like, it's probably equally thankful that Eleanor Roosevelt was the first lady at this time as well. It takes two, baby, as it's been said. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, Uh, just a, a really incredible story of some people who... I don't know, circumstances really led to a a big change in the world uh, for the better, to whatever degree it was, just by them knowing each other and falling in love. You know, Mm -hmm. love saved the day in this case, quite literally. Yeah, and if you were invited to a party tonight, you're not sure you want to (laughs) go, go to the party. Yeah, you might stop Nazism. You might might prevent World War III. Yeah. Or at least win it. Or at least win it. (laughs) Yeah, if only their meeting had prevented World War II. That would have been even better. Clementine Churchill. What a boss. I'm so glad to learn about her. Yeah. This is a good one. And Winston's super cool in some ways. And of course, I think we mentioned earlier, he's super uncool in many ways. (laughs) You know, we're not here to define a person uh, 100% one way or the other. Uh, We're just here to talk about uh, their their sweet, sweet love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Their sweet, sweet love, which literally, literally changed the world and the course of history. Indeed. Not every marriage can say that. Nope. We're working on it. I know, right? One, one day we'll change history. And if you have a suggestion for how we can change the world, <laughs> uh, please email us at romance at iheartmedia.com. Right. Or you can find us on the social media platforms. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And I am at Oh Great, It's Eli. And you can find the show itself at Ridic Romance, R-I-D-I-C, R-O-A, Romance. R-O-A. R-O-A. R-I-D-I-C romance. You know how it's spelled. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, let us know what you thought. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. We had a great time talking about it. Yeah. Hopefully you had a great time hearing about it. And we will talk to you on the next one. See you soon. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.